Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 3 through 21. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, ha that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, we pray for your blessing upon this light that is before us. May it illumine our minds, may it encourage and instruct our hearts, that we might be nourished and strengthened to live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Our message this morning is we have a living hope. We have a living hope. And it may not be obvious to you, but this is very much about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it does for us, what it tells us and teaches us about our Lord Jesus and what we might expect out of our walk of faith. The first verse of our passage, verse 3, and the last two verses of our passage are parenthetical. They kind of bracket this whole passage. If you noticed, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a mention of the resurrection. In verse 20, He, Christ Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Another mention about the resurrection. So this whole thing is kind of surrounded by the teaching of Christ coming out of that grave. We have a living hope in Christ Jesus and in his word and in instruction. instruction. So we want to look at several things. And there's six points and a few subpoints, and I'm going to be moving quickly. I know some of you got up early, so if you snooze, I will be gracious and forgive you. But put on your seatbelt, so I'm going to try to move fast. We have a living hope. We have a valuable test. We have a sublime wonder. We have a call to action, a priceless ransom, and an eternal victory. All of that we're going to see in this morning's message. We have a living hope. We've already mentioned it already, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in these last times. I don't have time to get into this deeply. I wish I could. But what I want you to see is this living hope we are in promise. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. And of course, he is talking about the promise of hope in heaven, in glory for all eternity. But we may all have... They also have a foretaste of that here in this life. And we'll see how as we get further into the scripture. But as we anticipate glory, as we anticipate heaven, we want to be reminded that he should be our first desire. Our Lord and our Savior should be our first desire. The first one we long to see when we get there. If you are not nurturing that attitude into your lifestyle, You need to be. The Apostle Paul said, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for them who love him. 
watching a program recently about the ancient pharaohs. When they've unearthed their tombs and opened up the pyramids, they saw how they practiced, I've forgotten their term for it, but a kind of a life after death. They would bring things into the tomb where the pharaoh died so that things that they enjoyed and loved in life so that they could enjoy them in the afterlife. They thought that eternal life, if they believed in eternal life, in paradise was just like it is on earth. But scripture says again and again and again, we cannot describe or imagine what it's going to be like. It will be beautiful. We will know one another. We will love one another, but it's going to be beyond imagination. And we should be looking forward to it. We have a living hope that is an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We will never grow tired of it. We will never grow tired of eternity there. There will be things to do. There will be responsibilities to take. There will be purpose for our living there. And we will not grow tired of it. We have a living hope. We have a valuable test. Verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And who among us has not been grieved by various trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're all familiar with the term, absence makes the heart grow fonder. But need I remind you that that term is always applied to earthly affections. Do we ever apply it to our Lord and Savior? He in body is absent from us, but he is present with us in spirit. But there is something that I'm sure all of you long to see one day, substance. But the Bible says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is true. But Jesus Christ arose bodily out of the grave, and he bodily ascended into heaven, and his body sits on the throne of the universe. There will be a day when we will see the nail scars in his hands and feet and on his side. And scripture isn't explicit about it, but I'm going to say that that suggests that we may even see the scars from the whip everywhere on his body. And for you and I, I cannot help but think that that will be beautiful. 
to see our Savior who rescued us from condemnation, from bondage and sin, be reminded of the scars that he bore so that we might be free. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That is the promise of reward. That is what we will receive because of this valuable test that we live in in this day and time. These various trials, these tribulations, these temptations that we face and thwart and fight off daily. Sometimes even minute by minute. It is a test to strengthen your faith and to draw you away from this world make you weary of all of that that never satisfies only to look to him. It always made me feel a little uncomfortable as a young man when in church we'd sang, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to his bosom fly. But I understand now what it was talking about. This valuable test in which we live has a promise of eternal glory for us all. We also know are taught in Scripture of a sublime wonder, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's talking about the faithful Old Testament prophets of Israel. They had the spirit of Christ within them, according to what it says here. Verse 11, inquiring what person of time or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The faithful prophets of the Old Testament knew Redeemer was coming. They just didn't know when. They knew that a new kingdom would be established, and they longed to see that day but they were instructed by the Spirit that the benefit was not for them, not in their lifetime, it is for you. Well, essentially it was for the first audience that Peter was writing to, but it's for you and I. The faithful saints of old were studying Scripture, teaching and preaching the truth in order that we might be partakers of that fruit. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have not now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Old Testament saints, Holy Spirit in, in filling the people at Pentecost and the faithful preaching of the gospel at the beginning of the New Testament church wonderful powerful things coming from God so wonderful and so powerful that this says that things into which angels long to look and the word in the Greek says that they were stooping down looking closely at it the glorious powerful angels 
that adorn the courts of heaven and sing praise to him are amazed at what he has done for our salvation. Does any of this mean anything to you at all? We have a living hope. We live through a valuable test with a promise of future hope. And all of this is a sublime wonder. The truth that we have in Scripture comes to us, and it's been so amazing that even the spiritual forces in glory stand in slack-jawed wonder. A reasonable response. There is a call to action right in the middle of this text. Verse 13 through 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If there is any kind of a task you need to do, you prepare yourself for it. Something you might not want to do, sometimes it's something you, that needs to do, something you long to do, that needs to be done, you prepare for it. I don't care what the task is, you might set some tools aside and get ready for them. You're going to prepare everything logistically so that you can get through your project or your task quickly and thoroughly and efficiently and effectively and perfectly. Such should, you, such should be your Christian faith, your Christian walk. Prepare your minds. We'll talk about that in a moment. In a moment. But pre prepare your minds in order to live by faith. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In this call to action, in this passage, we see that there is instruction for mental discipline. We've already mentioned it. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the renewing of your minds, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies in living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Peter's not the only one that talks about mental ability as a, you need to understand the word. You need to understand what is expected of you. You need to understand the wisdom that is within Scripture in order that we might live by it. The way you think is the way you will act. Romans chapter 8 reminds us those who live by the flesh
Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live by the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who live by the flesh, that's all they think about. The way you think is the way you will live. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And if we are to receive and be blessed by all of the promises that Christ gives us through the resurrection, we need to change our minds. There's a mental discipline that is required. There is also self-controlled, or what I like to call active repentance. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of the former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Well, what's former ignorance? He's talking about that time in your life when you didn't know Jesus and you were lost. But you've heard the gospel, you've received him by faith, you've been saved. And I'm sure you're aware of the difference it's made in your life, but how much do you know ignorance is almost a transliteration of the word gnosko from the Greek. It's got a negative at the beginning of it, no knowledge. Are we still in no knowledge of God's word and his truth? Are we still ignorant? Or do we know him? It's first talking about the former ignorance when we were lost, but now that we are saved, we should be learning of him. We should know of him. If you've been going to church for some time, or perhaps if you've grown up in church, that reference to former ignorance could also be talking about, could also be applied to the possibility that time in your life when you never took the time to really learn about Jesus. It's been said that one of the biggest problems of the modern church is the knowledge about Scripture is miles wide and about an inch deep. Most Christians are just like that. They don't know very much about Scripture. That's why they are so easily led astray. But this mental discipline will require self-control because we don't want to be going back to the old ways. We don't want to be tempted or led astray. And false prophets, false prophets want your respect and they want your money. And they will tell you anything in order to get it. There are things that false prophets will tell you, things that Jesus never said. Jesus never said, listen to your heart. He never said, be true to yourself. He never said, trust your gut. He never said, feel good about yourself. He never said happiness is what matters. And he never said just be a good person. 
things he actually said? Luke 9, 23, Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and, I, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. If you love your life in this world, yielding to the temptations of this world, not strengthening your faith, you're going to lose your life because you'll just realize too late that you were actually lost, never trusting in him fully. But if you hate your life in this world and you will keep it for eternity. Some of us struggle with this idea, this concept of love and hate as it's talked about here in scripture. It's coming out of the Greek word, but it's also coming from a Hebrew mindset or a Hebrew concept. The Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture had no words for like. There was no adjectival use of anything between love and hate. That's why these decisions that we need to make must be so clear. You're making a choice. I'm going this way, I'm not going to that way. I'm loving this way, I'm hating that way. Some people struggle with the idea that God hates anyone. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. He hates rebellion. And those who follow that will be punished for what they do. But what you and I need to understand, it is a clear choice to follow him and no one else. To follow Christ takes some mental discipline. It takes some self-control. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance, of your former ignorance. It also takes some holy allegiance. Verse 15. He also called he who also excuse me. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The proper response to all of these requirements is just to live in honor of his name. Give him glory. Most of us adults are familiar with our wedding bands and the vows that we took promising our love to one another. I'm going to use some other languages, promising our allegiance to someone else, promising our faithfulness to someone else. And we're usually glad and almost proud to wear that out in public. 
I identify with my bride. She identifies with her groom. You and I as Christians should be proud and eager to say, I identify with my Lord and Savior. A holy allegiance. We also see in this call faith that is serious, faith that is refined and strengthened. Verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourself with fear. Conduct yourself with reverence. Let your faith be refined and strengthened during this time of exile, this time in this life, this time of testing. God is in... God is providential in all that he does for your life, personally, each and every one of it. He is in control of everything that happens to you. And everything that happens to you is for a reason and for his purpose and for your good. You're his child. He will instruct you. He will correct you. He will refine you. And sometimes it's going to be difficult. Sometimes it's going to be tricky, hard. You might not know what to do. You will have to seek his wisdom and his help to get through it. But it is there for a reason. I saw something this week. It's a rather new website a man has put up. His name is Eric Kahn. He wrote something very simple, very succinct. Wise fathers don't give their sons posh, spoiled lives. They strategically expose their sons to stress and difficulty. They push their sons and encourage their sons through it. You can do this. Don't quit. Press on. Wise fathers are the fountainhead of strong men. You can make the same application for mothers and daughters or parents and children. But we essentially can make that same application of God and child of God. Our Father in Heaven does not promise posh, spoiled lives. He strategically exposes each one of us to stress and difficulty, and he encourages us as we move through that trial. Don't quit. Press on. Remain faithful. You shall see glory. Blessed be the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he is when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which he, our Father, promised to those who love him. James 1. 
We have a living hope. We have a valuable test. We have sublime wonder. And our reasonable response is listening to the call to action, mental discipline, active uh, repentance, holy allegiance, and serious faith. Two more quick points, and we're done. We are beneficiaries of a priceless ransom. We are beneficiaries of a priceless ransom. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been redeemed not with silver or gold. We don't think of it as perishable. But Peter in his epistles tells us that all of that will burn away. It's going to be extinguished. Do you know how gold, how valuable gold is to God? Heaven, the city of God, uses it for asphalt. Readjust your priorities. The blood of your Lord and Savior is the most precious thing in this universe. It is the most precious thing in eternity. And you have been ransomed by it. We are beneficiaries of a priceless ransom. And he is the one who has secured an eternal victory for you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Eternity. Never had a beginning, will never have an end. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made fast, manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's why we can rejoice this day, Resurrection Day. We have so much in Christ that he has secured for you the day he came out of that grave and the day he ascended to the throne on high. It is reasonable. Indeed, it is unreasonable for you to do no less than follow him faithfully. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Well, let me go to the third verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. the founder and perfecter of our faith. I kind of like the old King James. The author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It means he held it in contempt. It did not bother him. 
Some of us as youngsters remember going to school and on the playground, kids used to just make fun of us and it always hurt. If you remember how they mocked and jeered at him and spat on him, didn't make him flinch one bit. He went to the cross, despising, turning aside, holding in contempt all that they did to him. It did not stop him. Did not make him whimper, did not make him cower. Who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Always consider what he endured for your salvation. And remember, he did it for you and calls you to be as faithful to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your help and for your guidance in your word and truth. We thank you for this day, and we rejoice to know that each and every Sunday morning is a day of resurrection, a day of celebration. Help us as your children to be glad and rejoice in all that you have done for us and will do for us. Keep us faithful. Keep us enthusiastic. Keep us energized for the sake of the cross. It is in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.